And this passage tonight is instructions about what to do. And even though it's an if-then construction, if this is the case, then you are to do this. It's not hypothetical in the sense that you should consider it. This might be the case at some point. Here's some advice. It's not merely hypothetical, and it's not advice. The if-then construction is still a command, and I want us to be mindful of the pervasive number of commands in the Scriptures. The rabbis have counted hundreds of commands in the Old Testament. Consider that the first words in the Garden of Eden that in the biblical record is spoken by the Lord to an image bearer was to Adam alone, and it was a command. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17... Uh, we see that the Lord speaks to his image bearer about his role. And he says, you may eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so you have uh, the record of scripture giving to us God's instructions to his image bearers. And in the garden, the biblical record tells us of a command, more specifically, a prohibition. You are not to eat of this, though you may freely eat of the other tree, trees. And we need to know the ways that biblical laws appear. Sometimes it's in a you shall not kind of way. Uh, similar to Genesis 2.17. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, I think of the Ten Commandments. Um, you shall not have any other gods before me. Those you shall nots are what you might call didactic commands. They are not given a lot of nuance and context added to it. It's a you shall not, some kind of prohibition. One of the more common in uh, not just the Ten Commandments, but in other parts of Exodus. But there are other laws that don't seem to be as direct or didactic. They can be called case laws. And this is what we have in Numbers 5 tonight. And the case law is a law or instruction, some kind of command given, if such and such proves to be the case. So there's an if condition to it. If you find yourself in a situation where this is the case, that's what we see unfolding in verses 5 to 10. When or if a man commits any of these sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and the person realizes his guilt, and here's what he should, should do. And it's not so simple and clear-cut like in some of the Ten Commandment regulations. In, in fact, the case laws can seem quite micro in their focus because they give you very specific details. If this is happening and this is happening and this is what he does and then this is the response, then here's what you should do. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of ifs to follow down the track. And it, it's not so much like you shall not steal. All right? it's, it's more complicated than a didactic law. These case laws are the majority kind of laws in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. There are a lot of those direct you shall nots, but more often you will see the Lord seeking to apply biblical reasoning and precepts to specific cases. Because after all, that's kind of where we find ourselves in life all the time. We don't, we don't live floating above the details and circumstances of life to where all we need are these didactic teachings. The life of Israel would put them in circumstances and certain relationships. Someone who did this, and then what should my response be? These case laws are to help the Israelites apply the biblical commands and wisdom of things like the Ten Commandments. 
Think of the case laws as extensions of those most basic teachings, the Ten Commandments. And in this case, what you have is some kind of unfaithfulness or breaking word with Yahweh. What we're told in verse 6 is that it's a breaking faith with the Lord. That means there is a sin in the camp. There is sin ultimately against the Lord, since any sin against neighbor is a transgression of God's law, and therefore a sin against God. And therefore there has been created some kind of impurity or breach that needs to be mended. I think you can distill verses 5 to 10 To this concern, what do you do when you wrong someone? And all of us will. All of us have. You're just not going to go far in life before you're in a relationship with someone and you realize what I have done was a wrong against this particular person. And the Old and New Testaments address the realities that even as the people of God, we will dwell in the community of the saints with the potential to wrong other people. And when we do... There are, there are responses, repentance, and even reparation or what you might call a restitution in this case in order to address the wrong. And that's, it's not to say that a human relationship can be simply boiled down to economic terms. But for an analogy, let's think of the fact that a human relationship could be compared to some kind of commercial or economic situation and that you have made, you have accrued some kind of debt that then needs to be paid. Uh, one way to think about transgression or sin is debts that need to be forgiven. Um, translations will even use this language in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What's that language trying to get at? Well, it's a metaphor of trying to think of sin as something that when we commit it, it it accrues on our part a debt that ought to be paid. We now owe something. Uh, Something has not happened in the way that it should, and now a breach has taken place, and something needs to mend it, some kind of, let's call it restitution, in the language of our passage tonight. So if... uh, If you look at the beginning of chapter 5 that we saw last time, it's concerned with ceremonial purity. You can be ritually unfit to approach the tabernacle if you've made contact with a dead body. Or if you have a skin disease. Or if you have some sort of discharge. Now the Levitical laws talk about those realities in Leviticus 12, Leviticus 15. But those symbolize the need within the camp to be rightly ordered in your relationship both to God and to neighbor. Verses 5 to 10 tonight are trying to address the fact that here sin has come into the camp, sin against God and neighbor. Not against everybody in the camp, but sin in the camp nonetheless. If we look at verses 1 to 4 alongside our passage tonight, what if somebody's skin is clean... What if they have no discharges? What if they have not come in contact with any dead bodies? And yet, with the way they use their words and actions, they sin against their neighbor. But ceremonially, you know, they seem clean. No contact with dead bodies, no discharges, and no skin disease. Well, we recognize that in the level of importance, moral 
um, fittedness and righteousness among neighbor and God is a paramount idea in the Old and New Testament. It's not peripheral. It's major. It's the pursuit of justice, living justly, walking humbly, living justly with neighbor. And verses 5 to 10 instructs a person who has sinned against their neighbor and needs to confess and make restitution. This is not a new idea that we get to now in numbers that we haven't seen earlier. And I don't mean earlier in numbers. I mean earlier in Leviticus we've seen stuff like this. Earlier in Exodus we've seen stuff like this. The idea that a relationship can have some kind of breach in it that forms some tension or, or gap that needs to be filled by reconciliation or restitution. And sometimes those are the same ideas. In order to unpack tonight's instruction, which seems a little weird, okay, I grant that. It's talking about uh, making restitution and adding a fifth and taking something to the priest who then keeps the holy donations And we read this perhaps as New Covenant people and we think, how does this help me deal with when I have wronged someone? (laughs) Okay, now so there are principles that I think will help us. We've got to get our minds around what was the immediate context here that this is addressing and uh, what undergirds that that's always true. This passage, like other parts of Numbers that we've seen, relies on some knowledge of Leviticus. And um, it's been... Um, since 2020 that we completed our study through Leviticus. And in Leviticus 5 and 6, I just want to remind you of a particular offering. Leviticus 1 to 7 gives you five major offerings the Israelites would bring to the tabernacle. The last and fifth one is found in Leviticus 5.14 to 6 verse 7. Leviticus 5.14 to chapter 6 verse 7. And it's called the reparation or trespass offering. And what it has in mind... This will help us with tonight's passage, I promise. It has in mind, you have transgressed a holy boundary in some way. The violation could be you took some of the food that belonged only to the priests. That was a violation of the food that was set apart to be holy unto the priests and not shared among the Israelites. It may mean you went into the courtyard of the tabernacle and you misused or, or wrongly, uh, wrongly approached some kind of holy vessel like the bronze altar or bronze uh, basin. Or maybe you even tried to enter the holy place, which would just be a crazy thing to do because you were barred from it if you were not a priest from Levi's tribe. If you violated the holy things, you trespassed. And you would need to offer what was called the reparation or trespass offering. A boundary had been laid down and you just stepped right over that. You just transgressed it. Uh, There are narratives that talk about this. King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 offered incense. He was not a priest from Levi's tribe. And he goes into the temple to offer incense. There, there are other uh, examples of how this could be defiled, but it's the idea of boundaries being laid down, especially with the holy things and holy priests, and you ignoring it. Well, if you ignored that as an Israelite, you had an offering that you, that you were required to give, and it was called the reparation or trespass offering. You committed, in that case, something called sacrilege. Sacrilege is a very heavy term, and it wasn't something you committed just with any sin in the camp. Sacrilege was the desecration of something holy. That's what it means to commit sacrilege. To misuse or corrupt what was sacred. 
And the closer you went to the tabernacle, the more sacred the space became. And entering the courtyard, you were in front of the bronze uh, altar. And then approaching the holy place, only the priest could enter. And the behind the innermost veil, only the high priest. There was an increasing level of sacredness. And therefore, if you didn't take that seriously, you could be struck down by the Lord. In Numbers chapter 3, we learned that one of the responsibilities of the Levites was to guard the sacred space of the tabernacle. Such that if any would be found just entering and violating the holy things of the Lord, the Levites could justly put them to death. So sacrilege or the desecration of holy things was a heavy subject indeed. You didn't want to do it. And if you did it, even unwittingly, maybe you were ignorant of something or forgot something. And all of a sudden you realize you've committed a trespass in the Lord's holy things. Well, there had been provided for you something to do. Now, that was a little bit of review back to uh, that fifth offering in Leviticus 1 to 7. Here's what we see in our passage tonight. It's as if the principle of sacredness is extended to the camp as a whole. So that if you were to wrong or sin against somebody in the camp, you were trespassing what was holy. Now, that's not because everybody in the camp was a priest like those from Levi's tribe or everybody just becomes a high priest. It's not like that. It's like what God says to the Israelites in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. And he wasn't just talking to the priests. He's talking to the people. They were considered a holy people and a kingdom of priests. So in a large sense, Israel was to be God's holy son. That means if you didn't love your neighbor in the camp, in fact, if with your words and your actions you sinned and wronged your neighbor, you could consider that a transgressing over what was holy. Not because everybody was a priest like the Levite priests, and not because everybody could go into the tabernacle like only the priests could, but because as a whole, the Israelites were to be a holy nation. So therefore, loving your neighbor mattered. You had an incentive to love God and neighbor with your words and actions. That means if you broke faith with Yahweh, if you sinned against your neighbor and realized your guilt, you realized I trespassed on something holy. Not because it was in the tabernacle, but because God's people are a holy people. That's the idea. Now, let's look specifically at these verses. In verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, that's just the introductory phrase. We see that a lot. Verse 1 says it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying. Verse 11 will say it that we'll see next Sunday night. The Lord spoke to Moses saying. These, These are signaling to us some new and fresh instruction. But Moses is the one receiving this instruction to mediate it to the people. He's their voice. He's the mediator and representative of God's words to the people. And therefore, God speaks to Moses and he's going to tell them. Well, let's get the instruction before us. Verses 5 through 7 are about when you wrong someone. And then verses 8 through 10 are what happens when you try to pay restitution after the person you've wronged has actually died. So what do you do in the situation when you wrong someone? That's verses 5 to 7. And then what do you do when the restitution needed comes after the person you wronged has died? That puts you in an awkward situation. Does it just sort of go away and evaporate into the air? Uh, Is there something else you need to do in that person's stead? So verses 5 to 7, when you wrong someone. uh, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. And here's the law 
Okay, it's put in the case law language with if or when. If or when, a man or a woman. Well, that's quite general then, because this is to be inclusive of everybody in the camp. No one should say, well, you know, that's for just women to do, or that's just for men to do. It's to recognize that as a man or as a woman, I have the capacity to wrong another person. I can sin against them with my words and deeds. So what do I do? Well, when a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he's committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. There, is in, there, there are several components to this uh, case law, isn't there? There is a recognition of the guilt so something has been done, either knowingly or even unknowingly, but somebody has trespassed. Somebody uh, has engaged in activity that has violated God's law. One writer puts it this way. The nature of this activity is vague until one considers Leviticus 6, where that fifth Israelite offering is mentioned. The actions there give us some information. So when you see someone, uh, or when you see uh, Moses being told, when someone commits the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, you think, well, what, is, what does that mean, though? Like, what does that include? Leviticus 6 tells us, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt, he shall restore what he took. This has in mind guilt accrued or a debt accumulated by several possible breaches. It wasn't just one thing you could do in breaking faith with Yahweh. Breaking faith with the Lord and sin against the neighbor are thought of together here. It's not, it's not as if you could say, well, I didn't break faith with Yahweh. I just sinned against my neighbor. Well, see, even David realized in Psalm 51, against you I have sinned. He recognizes that though David himself, as the king of Israel, had sinned against his neighbor, sin against neighbor is a violation of God's law. And if therefore we have sinned against neighbor, we have sinned against the Lord. Breaking faith with the Lord is a way of trying to introduce a spiritual dynamic here. Breaking faith with the Lord. There has been a call to be faithful, and that's not happened. There's been a promise or some vow that's been made, and it's not been kept. And it was done in the name of the Lord. And therefore, this is a breaking faith with the Lord. When a man or woman commits any of these sins, well, let's think about what Leviticus 6 says. Deceiving your neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Well, back when we were in Leviticus 6, here's some of the possibilities I suggested. Somebody might entrust you. They might say, dear friend, will you keep an eye on this particular thing? Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it's money. And they need you to watch it. They need you to steward it. They need you to guard it. And you think to yourself, well, it would be a crime if something happened to this, wouldn't it? You know, if they came back and all of a sudden it was a little less than what they gave me. And I'd say, oh, no, you know, this is what you gave me. What do you mean you gave me more than that? I don't think so. In other words, it's a matter of deposit or security. And in the ancient world, whether it was an animal or some heirloom or cash, this was somebody's livelihood that it represented. And they're entrusting you with it. And you as your neighbor are defrauding your neighbor 
by misusing or appropriating for yourself what's not yours. You shall not steal. And yet here's an example in Leviticus 6 of a particular case where that command is violated. It could be in Leviticus 6 that it's a breach of faith against God and neighbor by actually robbing someone. Now, this could be done through a threat of violence, breaking into their home, taking someone's animal. There's their, you know, their uh, ram feeding outside. I'm just going to go ahead and take that. Well, this isn't like a domesticated pet, even though you shouldn't take those either. Uh, this is to say that if you have an animal in your herd, you have that for your economic stability. That means if you deceived your neighbor, defrauded or robbed your neighbor, you were affecting their lives. So by treating their possessions in a wrongful way, you were treating your neighbor in a wrongful way. It's not because your neighbor is your possession or vice versa. It's to say that there is a real ownership in the scriptures that's acknowledged. And that if somebody has this and you defraud or rob that, then you have committed a wrong. And the third and last possibility in Leviticus 6 was you have oppressed your neighbor. Well, in the ancient world, and not just in the Old, but in the New Testaments, the prophets and the apostles warn against people who are earning wages and aren't paid properly. It could mean paying somebody less than you promised them. Here you had formed some kind of contract, or you agreed to work for this amount of money, and then you've done that labor, you've earned that wage agreed upon, but then you're defrauded. In James chapter 5, the New Testament warns in that letter about that very situation where people in the church communities around James's uh, writing, they are, they are uh, not paying the harvesters and laborers the earned wages. And, he, and James basically says in James 5, the Lord knows and sees and Christ is coming to judge. It tells us in uh, Deuteronomy 24, you shall not oppress a hired servant. Whether he's one of your brothers or a sojourner, you shall give him the wages on the same day. For if he is poor, he counts on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. You see, one way to uh, defraud others would be to recognize their state in needing money for their family. Maybe it's the bread that they earn that day will be the bread they eat that night. And yet you deny them what they have rightfully earned. All of these were possible ways that I've tried to uh, tease out here of deceiving your neighbor or defrauding them, robbing them uh, directly or oppressing them in some kind of vocational way. And then the, I, I said that was the third and last one, but there is one more in Leviticus 6. Finding something lost and lying about it. You know it belongs to someone else and you say that it's yours instead. In fact, your operating philosophy might be finders, keepers, losers, weepers. You know, it's that, that, uh, that little rhyme there that ignores the commands of God or trying to find the owner of this. It's just to say, well, my eyes have happened upon it. How convenient. And no, it's not a love of neighbor operating there, is it? It's, a, it's being consumed mentally and in your heart with stuff and not a love of neighbor. Those are all examples that can even involve some kind of swearing. And this isn't about swearing like profanity. This is swearing in the sense of an oath. Your neighbor might say, do you promise before God that you will guard this deposit? Or after the fact, do you promise? Are you telling me the truth that this is indeed what was left? This is what I gave you? Oh, I promise. I swear to the Lord, you know, my hand to God. All of that language to invoke faith in the Lord in order to stir up trust for the other person. Okay, I guess I can count on them. But in reality, it's corrupted character. 
In reality, it's a swearing of an oath or using the holy name of God for malicious purposes. That is sacrilege. Because the person who's your neighbor is a member of the holy people. And the name in which you have acted and made some sort of promise is a name that is holy, holy, holy. And therefore, you have accrued a kind of debt or guilt. So that's the idea in verse 6. The condition. If this person has done this and realizes their guilt. What should they do? Well, in verse 7 it says, He shall confess his sin that he has committed. In other words, there is an owning... Let's use the word owning of what has happened. Okay, I have done this. I have done this. It ought not to have been done, and I did this. So there is a confession of it. Not only a private knowing of what has happened, but an open recognition of what took place. I don't think this has to mean that the Israelite who has sinned goes to every tent in the camp trying to talk about the sin that he did. This likely means this is a confession of sin against, or this is a confession to the person he's wronged. In other words, he comes clean. He or she, since verse 6 says, whether this is a man or a woman. In other words, he recognizes that a breach in trust has happened. I'm owning what I have done. I recognize what, what has happened. And therefore, this confession of sin... Confessing his sin means he confesses knowing that this was a wrong. It doesn't just say he confessed what he did. He confessed his sin. There is a coming to grips mentally and verbally that what I did was a dishonor to God and to you as my neighbor. And then what will happen? Well, verse 7 says he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. Well, this is, a, this is a very practical application. This means that whatever you took wrongfully, whatever you defrauded, whatever you manipulated and twisted, you have not ceased to owe it. You owe it, and then some. The language adding a fifth to it, what that means is, if you defrauded your neighbor of $500, you pay $500 and 20% of that on top of it. Which means an additional 100 if my math is right. This isn't math class, so pardon me if my math is wrong. But I think that would end up being 600. Um, if not, you work that out later. It, in in the, this full restitution and then adding a fifth to it, giving it to him to whom he did the wrong, it's a way of saying, I don't want to just go back to the way it was where you entrusted me with $500 as a deposit and I misappropriated that and lied to you about it and swore in the name of Yahweh about it. Listen, I did it, it was wrong. Here is it back. Well, listen, there's, there's such a, a breach of trust that's been committed. There's such a loss of credibility in that moment for what's happened. Not only are you not going to be asked to hold that person's money again, but you are, it's as if the writer is saying, the Lord is saying to Moses, go above and beyond the mere exact restoration of it. Go above and beyond. This is an incentive that thieves not steal because he doesn't just say give back what you stole we find in exodus and leviticus and numbers this language of restitution which includes an additional amount if you were a thief in israel and you were caught in your activity you not only were required to give back what you stole you had to give back more than you took so all of a sudden 
You're hurting as a result of that. And maybe you thought you were, and that's what drove you to steal. But now you're in an even worse situation after the fact. Restitution is a way of trying to make something right. There are different examples in Exodus that are all over the place. Different ways of dealing with somebody's property or somebody's animals. Or if something was intentionally done or unintentionally done, how you can try to make something right. You know, there's a principle undergirding this, isn't it? The principle is, if I have wronged someone, how can I make it right? This is an important question. If I've committed a wrong against my neighbor, here was this relationship. I was called to love my neighbor and steward this relationship, and I've committed a breach of faith. What can I do? That's a position of humility. It's a position of openness and a position of perseverance, especially if your restitution is going to take you a while to pay back. If it was some kind of financial indiscretion, maybe what you took you don't even have anymore. You went to the casino and spent it all. Okay, well, not only are you called to make restitution, it may be a restitution that's not just in a 24-hour period. And this adding a fifth to it is a way of trying to put the perpetrator in a position of deference toward the need and rights and uh, importance of the individual wronged. It's not saying stuff is more important than anything else. It's saying, I'm going to go above and beyond, not because the stuff was that important, but our relationship was that important, and I wronged you. And so it's a uh, going the extra mile kind of idea. So I don't think, you know, the, the principle has to be taken over into uh, the New Covenant community with the kind of specificity that says, well, you know, what's 20%? It, that may be a wise thing to do. I'm just saying I don't think in the New Covenant community we see clearly in the New Testament that this is to be the practice. But it is interesting that when Zacchaeus is converted, you see him in, in Luke chapter 19 going around saying, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus says, well, today salvation has come to this house. And now why, why would that be a sign of salvation? Because a sign of the work of God by his spirit in the hearts of his people is that we not only love God, we want to love neighbor to our uttermost. We want to be faithful. We want to treat people with dignity. We want to honor them and their possessions. And if we have acted wrongly, if we've defrauded someone, if we've made some sort of breach of faith in any way, our Our goal is now, what can I do to make this right? Because it's not your stuff that ought to matter most to me. Your stuff mattered to me, and that's why we're in this situation. But because you matter, and in my clarity of thinking, I see what what I ought to prioritize, what can I do above and beyond to make it right? Uh, That's the kind of principle here that I think is undergirding the lives of God's people in the Old and the New Testaments. It's about living as a holy people. In fact, um, I'm thinking about how in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, he talks about our brother and sister being the one for whom Christ died. And that for Paul motivates the ethics of Christian living in the church, among other factors too. But to take into account the fact that I am to treat my brother and sister in Christ In a particular way, for Christ has died in their place. 
There there is a redemptive and value-conferring act of Christ upon His people that is to shape my ethic. Therefore, I'm not to wrong these people. I'm not to act in breaches of faith. I am to seek to repair and bring restitution when something has been wrong. So you might think to yourself, well, you know, in my life, I haven't taken anybody's livestock. I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't uh, been asked to watch this particular person's deposit and then mistreated that. Well, these are very specific cases, right? That's how case law works. So don't look at these cases and say, well, I don't see how anything uh, written here has to do with me. Well, yeah, we're in a different situation where this might not be the daily and weekly rhythms of the new covenant community. But perhaps in your life, with your words or actions, there are relationships in need of reparation or restitution. Perhaps you can recognize that sin that you have committed not only ought to be confessed to that person, but an expression with our words and actions of how valuable this relationship is that I have treated poorly. Now, in verses 8 to 10, these last verses, these all go quickly together. And in verses 8 to 10, here's the situation where what if you have realized your guilt? What if you're ready to make restitution and the person you've wronged has died? Well, that's an interesting situation to be in as an Israelite. What are you to do? Well, what they don't say in verses 8 to 10 is, well, you know what? If they died, what can you do? I guess it doesn't matter anymore. We'll just entrust the Lord who judges justly. Um, We don't not trust the Lord who judges justly. There is still, however, a practical response. In verse 8, If the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest. Verses 8 to 10 envision the scenario. You're going to try to make something right. Come to find out, however, the man is gone. And not only is this man or woman gone to whom you've committed a wrong, they don't even have any family either. Because maybe though the person you wronged was gone, their family at least would receive some sort of restitution. You could try to make things right because they probably know about what you did. There might, there might, in other words, it might not have been a quiet thing in the camp. But nonetheless, here's a situation where the person you've wronged is gone, no family either. What do you do? Well, in this case, the person who represents the Israelites to God and the person who represents God to the Israelites in the mediating work is the priest. So you're going to go to the priest with your restitution. In verse 8, the restitution for the wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest. In other words, you have made a breach of faith with the Lord and the Lord's representative, the priest at the tabernacle, you're going to him. And it's as if restitution to the priest becomes restitution received by the Lord. Now, that wasn't the only thing you were going to give to the priest. There was an offering in Leviticus 1 to 7, that fifth offering. The reparation offering meant you were going to bring an animal anyway. It's just now you're bringing the restitution to the priest in addition, verse 8 says, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. That means um, while you were going to be bringing a sacrifice after you've made restitution to the person you've wronged, now all of it goes to the priest. That's the instruction. And then in verse 9, this contribution, I think that's another way of saying what you're bringing to the priest. The restitution and the offering. That's the contribution, the holy donations. Because what you're bringing to the priest becomes his and therefore is set apart. It's no longer yours. It's given to the priest. 
So every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. The his there is the priest. The, the offerings that belong to the priest, any food or restitution that would belong to the priest, it becomes his in that setting apart act. The emphasis is clear because verse 10 repeats it. This is not new information in verse 10. It just tells you what we've just heard. Verse 10 says, each one, each priest, that's the each one there, shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. So just in case you didn't catch the drift of verse 9, it makes it really clear in verse 10. Each priest who receives restitution and the sacrifice, it belongs to the priest. Now there are some um, New Testament connections to these ideas that I think we could also tease out in our last minutes together. Um, have, you, have you thought perhaps of Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount here during our time? Where in Matthew 5.23 Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. So there is this emphasis on worship of God and love of neighbor that are not just separated entirely, but a recognition of that our human relationships among the people of God matter. That's what that brother language means. Here's someone among the saints. And therefore, righting a wrong or in some way making restitution, whether it's financially or relationally, there is a responsibility we have when we have sinned against other people. And the Bible doesn't want you to think of yourself as someone that can sin against others and bear no responsibility. The Old and New Testaments don't work that way. And we know, don't we, that on the ground relationships, they don't work that way either. We recognize the importance of owning with responsibility the wrongs that we've done and the effort to bring restoration and reconciliation. There's even an Old Testament phrase in Isaiah 53 that's connected to the future suffering servant who bears our trespass and our guilt. And this language about uh, making an offering for guilt is that fifth offering in Leviticus 1 to 7. It's that reparation offering. Here's the language in Isaiah 53, and you know this language. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. So in the Old Testament, we are confronted with the idea that we accrue sin like people accrue debts. And Jesus is the debt collector. Jesus has come to bear our debts upon the cross. To be our, let's call it, guilt offering. He's come to be and, the, and to serve as the fulfillment of what these offerings anticipate in the Old Testament. Here's his own language in Matthew 20. And in verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says in Matthew 26 at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the gospel news is that while we have been accruing a kind of spiritual debt, let's call it, 
And we need those debts forgiven. Christ has come to be the debt collector on the cross, satisfying the judgment for our guilt and shame, that we might walk in reconciliation with God and live out that reconciliation with neighbor as well. This is the application of the gospel of where this line from Numbers 5 is ultimately going. It ultimately heads to the cross, as the Old Testament itself does. When Paul describes the death of Jesus, I love the language of Colossians 2.13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, Paul says. All our trespasses. So God's name and God's holy uh, people and his holy law, all that God would require and call us to be and to do as image bearers, we have committed trespasses and the cross is the news that in Christ our trespasses are forgiven. And then the language continues. Forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. Whoa, hold on a second. That's amazing. By, I mean, listen, if, some, if you got a call because, you know, you had these outstanding debts and somebody was like, you know what, you don't have to pay that. Somebody paid that. You'd say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Um, and you might not want to ask too many questions, but you would at least be wondering, now, wait a second. Are you saying that I owed this particular debt and then someone else paid this particular debt to where that debt is now canceled and I no longer owe that? That's the news of the gospel. That is the news of the cross. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. Paul says this God set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's not as if God ignored justice. It's not as if God compromised his righteousness. Because God is righteous and holy, sin and all of its indebtedness that we have accrued must be dealt with. But God sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. And to add the language of Colossians 2 would have instead our record of debt canceled. And we are not condemned. Instead, we are justified. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.